Amen. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It is wonderful to see you, all of our members, our visitors, and to have those who are with us online joining us. We're so very glad to have you with us as well. We're continuing in our study of Romans this morning, and we're going to cover chapter 9. We've hit the halfway mark, and uh, we've got uh, about six, we got six more to go, and uh, so I hope you're studying along with me. Next week, we'll cover chapters 9 and 10. Today, we'll be in chapter 9, and Paul begins in chapter 9 by expressing his deep sorrow that he has for his fellow Jews. He's very uh, torn by their rejection of Jesus. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter five, uh, 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You hear Paul's anguish, his struggle, his sorrow for his fellow Jews because so many of them had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the promised Savior foretold in the, throughout the Old Testament. And, and notice that Paul highlights the advantages that the Jews have. He says, look, folks, you have uh, the adoption as God's children under the Old Covenant. You have the glory. That, that means the, the symbols of uh, God's presence with them like the ark and the cloud. He said, you have the covenants, you have the law, you have the worship. And that was all everything to do with the worship in the temple and the ceremonies. You have the promises of God and the patriarchs. You're, you're descended from them. Abraham, Moses, you know, Abraham, everyone, Jacob, Isaac. And then as God's chosen people, they had all these blessings, but look at what he finishes with in verse number 5. Because this is what he's talking about. In the end of verse number 5, And from their race, meaning the Jews, according to the flesh, is who? The Christ. He's saying all of these blessings are ours as Israelites, and also Jesus came through us. Jesus was descended through uh, the Jewish people. And he says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Not only did they have all of these blessings, but they had Jesus come through them. And that's why he was so torn, because they missed Jesus. They didn't miss all the other blessings that they had, but they missed and rejected Jesus. And so in verse number 6, he anticipates their rejection of what he's just said. And he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In, in other words, you have all these blessings as Jewish people, as the Israelites, the people of God... And they would say, so you're saying we have all these blessings? And, and because we don't believe in Jesus, we cannot obtain righteousness? Because they believed by simply being descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that 
uh, uh, they automatically secure, that automatically secures their eternal salvation. And so you're telling me that because we reject Jesus, we don't uh, gain that eternal salvation, although we have all of these blessings and promises? That's what Paul wants them to understand. And so, uh, of course, God's word didn't fail because if, if they were right and that they were rejected after receiving all these blessings and yet still weren't righteous, then, then something's wrong with God. Something's wrong with God's word. It failed. It didn't work because we didn't obtain righteousness is what the Jews would say in objection to Paul's statement. But look at verse number 6, continuing on there. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's important to understand what, in understanding what Paul is saying to the Jewish people there. And not all are children of Abraham because they are all his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, Paul writes, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What was Paul talking about there? Sometimes it's hard to figure it out. He's pointing out that the unbelieving Jews, that just because you are of this Jewish, Jewish heritage does not mean you are part of God's chosen people. And this would be a shocking, insulting statement to them. How dare you say something like that to us? But Paul points out, Two choices that God made to prove his point to them in verses 9 through 13. First, Paul points uh, out to them about Abraham and his son Isaac. God chose Isaac over who? Ishmael. Children, y'all remember learning about that in Bible class? See, God chose Isaac over Ishmael of all of Abraham's children. He had other children too, but God chose Isaac. And then he continues and he says that through Isaac came Jacob and, and Esau, but God chose Jacob over Esau. And through Esau, I mean through, through, through Jacob, ultimately became, uh, came the 12 tribes of Israel. And ultimately through them came Jesus, right? So see, God has been making choices all along. And he's saying just because you're a descendant of Abraham, the, the Old Testament tells us doesn't mean you're of God's people because only those who were uh, descended of uh, Isaac and then Jacob and so on. And so what Paul is doing is signaling and communicating this transition from the physical, earthly, fleshly people of God, the, that, those Israelites to the spiritual Israelites, which are the people who are in the Lord's church. That's what Paul's talking about. He's making this transition so that they understand. In verse number 8, Paul interprets the Old Testament promise by saying, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as righteous, meaning those who became God's spiritual children. That's what he's saying. So in verses 14 through 18, Paul raises the question then, is God unjust because he makes these choices? I mean, that, is, that seems not fair for God to do that, one might say. The Jews might, the unbelieving Jews might say. Look at verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very, so a third example, Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This might sound tough to understand. We might be uncomfortable with what Paul's saying right here about God. What what are you saying about God, Paul? What, What does that mean, we might wonder. But when we understand the context that he's writing this in, it helps us understand it clearly because this is a a passage that has gone to to teach the false doctrine of predestination, okay? The doctrine that says that God has literally created some, some people who will be uh, saved and have an eternal home in heaven, and he has created some people who will be lost and have an eternal home in hell. And so that's the doctrine of predestination. And so some people will go here and say, see, God chooses some to be lost and some to be saved. But what we need to understand is that if that's the case, then we cannot serve a loving God. Because how would a loving God literally create somebody who has no hope of being saved? Does that sound like a loving God to you? And so no matter what you did, no matter what kind of faith, no matter what kind of service, no matter what you did, there was no hope for you. You're eternally lost no matter what you do. That's not who God is. And and the truth is, is that Paul never said anything in this context about someone's eternal destination. Do you notice that? He's not talking about where someone spends their eternal life. He's talking about how throughout history, God made choices to unfold his plan of salvation. Does that make sense? So God, uh, just because he chose Isaac over Ishmael, doesn't mean he didn't love Ishmael. It doesn't mean he condemned Ishmael to hell. Just because he chose Jacob over Esau doesn't mean he had ill will toward Esau, even though in his omniscience he knew Esau would be a problem for Jacob. He understood that, but he didn't didn't destine Esau to live good or bad, good or evil, to be saved or lost. And Pharaoh is a good example. So when we see God talk, uh, Paul writing about Uh, election or predestination or anything like that, what he's talking about is somebody's service in the plan of God and not somebody's selection for eternal destination. Does that make sense? So this does not teach predestination. Pharaoh's an interesting example that Paul uses because God does tell Moses early on when he sends him to talk to Pharaoh, he does tell him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But what we see repeatedly over and over again is that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And and Pharaoh, it's even written multiple times that he hardened his heart and that the, the miracles and plagues that God did hardened his heart, caused him to harden his heart. Now, he hardened his heart every time after he refused 
to obey God when Moses came before him. Now God, here's something to understand, only hardened his heart to the extent of he put him in a occasion in a circumstance where Pharaoh had to decide to make a choice what he was going to do. Are you going to obey God or not? And so how many plagues were there? Anybody remember? There was 10 plagues, right? And so then there were some miracles beforehand, and then there was 10 plagues. And every time uh, Pharaoh had an opportunity to submit to God's will, but every time he didn't do that. And at one point he even, he even almost did, but then he changed his mind. And he, and he resisted God and rejected God and disobeyed God all the way to the point of the Red Sea where his army and possibly him were drowned in the Red Sea. All he had to do was obey and God would have still been using him for his purpose. Whether Pharaoh obeyed or disobeyed, he was going to be used for God's purpose to glorify God. God was going to be glorified and Pharaoh had a choice. Am I going to be glorified by being on God's side or being against God? And so either way, God would have been glorified. And had he obeyed God, then Pharaoh would have been praised for uh, what he did. And the nations would have uh, praised God for that. But that's not what God chose. So God uses circumstances for us to decide how we're going to act to those circumstances, how we're going to react. How are you going to respond? Are you going to let your heart get hard to God? Or are you going to let God work through you? Does that make sense? Pharaoh chose to let his heart, get hard, his heart get hardened. And he refused over and over and over again. And that's what Romans chapter 1 was about. If you remember that, God gave them over, gave them over, gave them over. So that he's going to let you do what you want to do. And yet he had the opportunity to obey God. So moving on to 19 through 29, turn there. And in verses 19, Paul raises a good question. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, I, I mean, if and, and they're raising the question, the non-believing Jews, hypothetically, if God's going to destine me one way or another, they would say, then why does he find fault with me? Because he's destining me to do what I'm going to do. And so Paul's saying, he answers this in verses 20 and 21. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What, uh, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So God knew how Pharaoh was going to respond. Just like he knew how all the other people he worked through were going to respond. But they always had the free will of choice. So he knew how they were going to respond. And he could talk in reference to knowing how they, the outcome would be. But he also, at the same time, allows people free will to choose how you're going to choose. And so... Uh, He's saying something that is, is maybe, maybe we don't like to hear. But the bottom line is that Paul is saying and that this passage from Jeremiah is saying is that guess what? God gets to be God and we can't do anything about that. God is almighty, sovereign God, creator God, and that's just it. It stops there. At the end of the day, he can do what he wants to do, but he will never act uh, uh, 
outside of or in, contra- in conflict with his character, his goodness, his love, his mercy, and his justice. And so he always acts in accordance with his character. And so the potter has the right to make what he wants out of the clay. And, and the clay doesn't get to talk back. Job dealt with the same thing in that letter. So God didn't heart, doesn't harden righteous people's hearts. But the, the potter uses the clay how he wills. Pharaoh hardened his heart, so God used him that way. Had Pharaoh softened his heart, God would have used him that way. God gets to work his purposes through his creation as he sees fit to unfold his divine plan. Does that make sense? So it's a test of our faith, though, isn't it? Because it makes us wonder, well, what's going on? Is this fair? Is this not? What about uh, uh, God letting me have free will? Well, God always gives us free will. And so we ultimately have to trust in God. That's what it comes down to. Are you going to trust that God is sovereign and almighty and that God actually knows what he's doing? See, you have to trust, and that is the epitome of faith. Are you going to have faith in God and believe he ultimately is in total control? You know, around town we see these signs, God is in control. Do you really believe that, or is that just a yard sign? Do you really believe that he's in control, and your trust is in him no matter what the outcome might be? We talked about that in class this morning. And that is the test of our trust. It's like even when it goes that way or this way, when I don't understand, do I still trust in the Almighty God? And Paul would would trade his own salvation if he could for his Jewish fellow men to believe, to have that conviction. So in, in verses 25 through 26, Paul shows us from the Old Testament that God's promise was always pointing towards a spiritual Israel made up of everyone who believed. Look at verses 25 through 26. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. This is from the Old Testament. And and her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, They will be called sons of the living God. See, from the Old Testament days, the Old Testament talked about the coming spiritual Israel, the Lord's church, God's people from all, made up of all people, uh, pointing us to Christ. The Old Testament was always pointing us to Christ. Now, in verses 30 through 33, Paul begins to conclude this chapter, and he shows his fellow Jews who are not Christians that although they had all these blessings of being uh, the, the, the heritage of, of Jew, the Jewish people, being the, uh, physically the earthly uh, people of God in the flesh, they ultimately fell short of being God's people because they misplaced their faith. Look at what verse 30 says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. The Gentiles came to God, obtained righteousness through faith in Jesus. That's what Paul's telling them. And he's saying to his fellow Jews, y'all missed it because you still have your faith in the works of the law, following the law, and you missed Jesus, who was the ultimate promise that uh, came through the Old Testament that everything was pointing to, and he's right here, and you missed him, and you rejected him, and you crucified him. And he's saying, that's why you didn't obtain righteousness in standing with God. And then he says, you've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now that's a powerful illustration used all throughout Scripture. Peter used it, uh, Jesus used it, uh, and it's all throughout the Old Testament. This stumbling stone, uh, it, it goes back to when the Assyrians were going to invade uh, the Israelites and conquer them. And God told them, put your trust in me. Don't make contracts and, 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 and deals with other nations and put your, your hope and your trust in, in your own military, your own skill, the, your own uh, coalitions you can build. He said, don't put your trust in that. You put your trust in me and I will be a rock of salvation, a sure foundation, one you can stand on, a sanctuary for you. But if you don't put your trust in me and you put your trust other things in your own resources and your own control, then you will be crushed. Is Jesus and the Israelites, the Jews, tripped up over Jesus? They couldn't see him, and they're walking along, blind to him, rejected him, refused him, and trip over Jesus. And when you trip over Jesus, then that same Jesus, he says, is the one who comes back to judge later. And then that's what he means by that stone crushing you. So you're either for Christ or you're going to stumble over the stumbling stone and, and, and not live for Christ at all. But you see, faith in Jesus is confessing that you can't save yourself. And that's what the Jews' problems were. And I think that sometimes our problems today because they, they thought they could save themselves through their own right. Can't do it. I'm not in control. Am I going to trust in God who is the one who has the power to save me or am I going to try to do it myself? Because you can't do it yourself. And that's what they didn't want to admit and confess because the, the cross was offensive to them. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, uh, the scripture says. But see, you've got to remember Jesus is the Savior. And that's the gospel message that, P that Paul's preaching here. And so I want to ask you, are you living like Jesus is the Savior? See, instead of wondering about, well, wh what is God doing with people and how he's working through people and what's the whole deal about the potter and the clay? See, what we need to do is figure out how I can get into his will and bend to his will. And our job is to bend our will to his will, to serve him, to be instruments we talked about in chapter 6 of his righteousness and his service. And that's what it means to trust in him. No matter what you're going through, God's in control. My job is to 
surrender and to serve and to worship and to praise him. So is that how you're living your life? Have you given yourself to Christ? Maybe, maybe that's where you need to start and you need to obey the gospel this morning and put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you need to get right with him in your faith. Whatever your need is, maybe you need prayers or encouragement, we want you to know this church is always here for you. Put your trust in God and get in his will. If we can help you this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.